Good morning. I, uh, I have to thank you all again um, for the continued warm notes and encouragement and all the offers of help. I have to say that it was overwhelming uh, for us. We, we rolled into town a week ago this past Saturday, and the beds were made. All of our stuff came in a big truck while we were away, and it was a group of you that came, and you got the beds set up, you got the beds made. There was stew cooking in a crock pot on the counter, and there was baked ziti in the refrigerator. Uh, you have overwhelmed us, and thank you so much for that. In case you don't know, I've been in town for one week and one day since having gone back to pick up my family. And crossing the state line, coming back into Wyoming, I have to admit I saw something that confused me. I saw a sign that I don't think I'd ever seen before. We were crossing into the state and I saw a, line that said, a sign that said, mandatory boat inspections. And I was like, really? There's something so important going on here that boats have to be inspected by rule of law as they're coming into the state of Wyoming. And there was another sign that said, like, port of entry. I was like, well, do you need a passport to come back into the state? This, this seems like a big deal. And I was kind of confused. Well, why do you have to have mandatory boat inspections when you're coming into the state of Wyoming? But then I got my A2801 magazine in the mail while I was gone. And I opened it up, and the answer was right there in front of me. It's because there's this problem with this thing called the zebra mussel. Has anybody heard of the zebra mussel? See, y'all knew this. You guys knew this. I didn't know. So I'm reading all about the zebra mussel, how the zebra mussel can attach itself to the bottom of a boat almost completely unnoticed. And all it takes is like a fragment of the zebra mussel to attach itself to the bottom of the boat. It can get into the, the waterways, it can get into the, the lakes, and it can completely blanket itself all over uh, our waterways and streams and rivers here in, in Wyoming and Sheridan. I thought, well, this is, this is kind of a big deal. And there was these other intrusive species, something called the, uh, I think it was the New, the New Zealand mud snail that can clone itself. I thought, well, that's kind of scary. This thing can come in and clone itself. And so they've employed all these measures, the mandatory boat inspections, and they've even got muscle-sniffing dogs. Did you know the state of Wyoming has muscle-sniffing dogs? Well, they do. All in an effort to keep out this invasive species that can do so much damage. Billions of dollars are being spent to keep them out because if they get in, and if they cause an infestation, then the cost to get rid of it is immeasurable. So all of those species are called AIS, Aquatic Invasive Species. There's another kind of infestation going on. See, there's a reason I'm talking about <laughs> mussels right now. And like the mussels, it can be hard to detect. It's very hard to keep out. But instead of killing waterways, it's killing churches, and it's killing families, and it's killing people. It's actually been referred to as the silent killer in both churches and families. 
One report cites that its impact has contributed to three out of five divorces. However, this killer isn't spelled A-I-S. It's spelled P-O-R-N. And I have to say at the outset today that today's sermon is going to be rated PG. This is a difficult subject that we're going to broach. Um, pornography has become the silent killer in many churches because so many people are involved in it and they're hiding uh, the use of it because it's fairly easy to hide. Most men I know at some point have been exposed to this. Uh, it may not be a huge ruling force in their lives, but many it is. Um, and it holds true for our youth. 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to internet pornography before the age of 18. That's according to a report done 10 years ago. I imagine it's only gone up since then. And I really believe that this is one of, if not the biggest issue that's facing us today. And not only as a church, but really as a society. And the text we're going to look at today demands we look at this. I'll be frank. This early in my tenure, this was not really a subject that I wanted to broach. However, this is where the text is taking us today. And I feel like this is somewhere that I'm going to have to go. So Paul is going to give us a command of the passage that we're going to look at. And the command is to walk in love. The issue with pornography, as well as some other issues that he's going to bring up in terms of conduct, things like covetousness, uh, things like your speech, all of these things can stand in direct opposition to this command that Paul is giving us in the text to walk in love. So we're going to jump into this, and the text we're going to look at today is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. And I would ask that you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You may be seated. We're in the middle of a series right now from the book of Ephesians called Learning to Walk. And Paul's written these letters to these fledgling churches, teaching them how to conduct themselves. We've talked about walking in holiness and walking in unity. Today we're going to talk about walking in love. And we'll approach this text, this text and answer two questions. First, we'll talk about how not to walk in love. That'll be in the latter half of this um, passage. Then we'll talk about how to walk in love. Both are present here. We'll start out with the first, how not to walk in love, the, the negative. Each one of these, we're going to look at some very practical ways to apply this. So we'll start with the last half of the passage, verses 3 through 6. This is how not to walk in love. Here Paul mentions two things he says must not even be named among you. 
not even be named among you. He says it's sexual immorality and covetousness. These things are the opposite of walking in love. As a matter of fact, the word we get for um, pornography is a word porne. It's a Greek word. It's translated here sexual immorality. It's very similar to the Greek word for evil. And it refers to any sexuality outside of biblical grounds. Anything outside of biblical grounds. Then Paul gets more uh, inclusive when he says all impurity or any kind of impurity. So not, out, not only is he calling out any kind of a physical immorality, but also, also your thought life. What are you thinking? This is typically where our sins begin. So Paul is calling this out. This is where lust happens, is in the mind. Then he mentions the third sin on this list, covetousness. This is probably re referring to the Tenth Commandment. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. All of these things, Paul's saying, have no place in the life of the church. I want to dig a bit deeper for a moment on this issue of pornography. It's not going to be the theme throughout the message, but it is something that we need to talk about because it is such a pervasive issue, and if the statistics are true, it's impacting in some way or another on the spectrum just about everybody in this room, or at least the majority of the people that are in this room. Um, and just in case anyone would question whether or not this is a sin, I want to talk just for a moment about the underlying sin of pornography. Because there's actually more than one, but there's one that's pretty obvious, and it's this sin of adultery. Um, when you get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus draws a clear connection between lust and adultery. And if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that he'll talk about a particular commandment. Say, I know you've been told, for example, not to commit adultery. But he said, I'm going to tell you that if you lust after someone in your own heart, you've committed adultery. He says it there in verses 27 and 28. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So pornography is lust. It exists to foster lust. And lust is simply a form of the wider sin of adultery. It's this deed or desire to be sexually involved with someone to whom you are not married. Now, for some of you, you saw a picture on the internet for a moment, you saw a picture in a magazine, and frankly, you glanced right over it. It didn't have a lasting effect. Uh, I can remember being exposed to pornography the first time at the age of 10 years old. Me and some friends were out in the woods, and we came across a magazine. That was before there was any internet. That was being raised in a Christian home and going to a Christian school. And still, it wasn't enough to keep me from seeing this. Some of you, maybe even before you got here this morning, you went in and you deleted your browser history. Or you've made it a habit of opening up a, a private browser window so that nothing you see is going to be logged. And I want to take a moment, I want to speak to you if this has latched onto you, if this is a recurring struggle for you, and, and frankly, you're just under a weight of, of guilt, uh, I want you to hear me for a moment, because I want to talk about some steps to work your way out of this and to get help in working out of this. Uh, so first of all, confess and repent. 
Uh, if that's where you are this morning, confess and repent. Agree with God that this is sinful, that this is something that you shouldn't be doing. As Christians, this doesn't fit into the Christian walk. Um, it's acknowledging that God views it as harmful and it's destructive. It's contrary to his own character. You know, repent and also realize that Jesus paid the price for all of our sins, okay? Now, pornography, it is not a worse sin. It is a sin, though, that needs to be dealt with because it can be so addictive and it can be so secretive. So first of all, confess. And then the word repent means to turn. It's acknowledging this is a behavior I need to turn away from. So confess and repent. Second, affirm God's forgiveness. Uh, in 1 John 1, 9, we're told that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This, God's grace is more than sufficient to cover this, okay? Now, if you confess, if you repent, if you affirm God's forgiveness, Satan is going to try to keep you under thumb. He will try to bring this up again and again. This is not, this is not a male-female issue. Both sides struggle with this. This is not an old-young issue. People of all ages struggle with this. So we confess, we repent, affirm God's forgiveness. And then third, and this is very important, establish accountability. Establish accountability. Seek out someone to whom you can talk about this with. Explain to them, uh, you know what, this is a struggle I have. This is something I want to get rid of in my life. And I need to talk about it with somebody. Um, you don't have to give anybody explicit details. You're just asking them to hold you accountable as you are going through this, this transformation. Give them permission to ask you questions about what you're looking at. It's also important, I think, to reach out to a group. Uh, there's a group called Celebrate Recovery that meets at Cornerstone at 6 p.m. on Fridays. And if you want to go through this with fellow strugglers, this is a place you can do it. And that group is aimed at helping people out of what has become an addictive behavior. This is a big problem, and I can promise you, you are not struggling alone in this. Don't just suffer in silence. You know, my wife, she learned this phrase uh, when she was studying counseling, that we are only as sick as our secrets. We're only as sick as our secrets. Whatever it is that you're holding on to that you feel like you're so ashamed of, that's probably the very thing you need to find a trusted brother or sister and talk about it with. So establish accountability. Then fourth, install buffers and filters. Uh, there is some great technology that's available out there to help keep this stuff away from you. There's a wonderful program called Covenant Eyes. Actually, it's what I have on my phone. It's what a lot of pastor friends of mine have on their phone so that anything that you go out and you look at on the Internet, it's going to be reported to somebody else. Uh, I've got a, a friend and mentor in the state of Texas. He was an elder at a previous church. That if I go looking at something I shouldn't, he's going to know about it. And a note goes to my wife. She's going to know about it. So there's these programs out there, and there's others as well that can really help you in keeping this stuff away and giving you some built-in technology uh, on your phone or tablet or wherever you may need it. And then fifth, don't give up. Don't give up. You know, you may be going along for a while, you haven't looked at anything you weren't supposed to, then whatever it is, whatever happens, whatever life event occurred, you went and you looked at something you shouldn't have. 
that same grace and forgiveness are still there. That same freedom of shame and guilt are still there. You can go back to step one and just start working through it again. So if you're in that place, um, if you're stuck, I would ask you to strongly consider these steps. Don't just sit there and stay in that state of shame and guilt and repeated behavior. First of all, to walk in love as we're going through this means to abstain from pornography. Abstain from pornography. Now, in regard to these sins, Paul says in verse 3 that these things must not even be named among you. He's saying that these things need to be so universally absent from the body of believers that there should never be an occasion for anyone to associate any of this stuff with us, any of this stuff with the church. And I got to tell you, when I was going through this, I felt a bit overwhelmed because we are a generation that has unfortunately witnessed so many church leaders fall. And it makes people cynical. And I hate that. But you know what? We can be the ones to turn that around. And we can always start new. As a matter of fact, I was reading an article in the New York Times uh, about a well-known pastor had a church, I think, of about 25,000 people who ended up having an affair with his secretary. And you know what? It didn't happen overnight. But slowly and bit by bit, the guards started coming down. They started doing things they knew they shouldn't have been doing. And this is a man that many churches have said had been so helpful to them. God's plan for physical intimacy is to be enjoyed within marriage. Just to be enjoyed within marriage. And marriage is, God's, is a picture of God's love for us. Paul continues in verse 4 to address the conversation of Christians. He started out with the conduct. Now he talks about the conversation, how to talk. He says there should be no filthiness among you. Uh, Paul will sometimes refer to false teachers as doing what they're doing for filthy gain. Uh, he also says there should be no foolish talk. That's to say that we shouldn't be involved in a lot of empty and, and speculative speech that is really unhelpful. And we're probably all guilty of this on some level from time to time. Uh, I recall a story I heard of a pastor who was visiting a family where the father had just died and he went and talked to the son and said, um, young man, did your father have any last words? And the son said, no, mama was with him right up until the time he died. <laughs> that was a joke. That was, men are just as guilty of this. It's not just women, it's men too. Then finally in verse 4, Paul says, no crude joking. This pertains to sarcastic Ridicule, And there was actually a good definition of this in a, a commentary I was reading by Harold Honer. And he said, it most likely indicates a jesting that has gone too far, thus becoming sarcastic ridicule that cuts people down and embarrasses other, others who are present. And for those of us with the unfortunate spiritual gift of sarcasm, <laughs> we got to be careful with this. I think men can especially sometimes really cut each other down. Uh, you know, growing up, I was kind of a skinny, smart mouth kid, and I could get pretty good sometimes at cutting people down. And you know what? And I, I heard it, too. And there are some comments that will stick with you. For those of us that had to endure those, those awful teenage years, 
Um, I know that there was a comment someone probably made to you sometime that unfortunately has stuck with you. Words can hurt. So Paul has addressed both conduct and speech here. And he says that these things are not fitting for the saints. They're out of place. Well, now, what does that mean? That means this isn't what we as believers do. And I read an article recently about an incident that happened at the Air Force Academy where there was an African-American student and some students had come and scribbled some racial slurs on his door. So the, the commander, the lieutenant general of the Air Force Academy, he brought everybody together, some 5,500 students, faculty, staff, and he gave them a really firm speech on what had just happened. And I was struck by what he said because I think it's exactly what we're talking about today. He said, this kind of behavior has no place at the prep school. He said, it has no place at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He said, it has no place in the U.S. Air Force. You should be outraged, not only as airmen, but as human beings. Then he went on. Just in case you're unclear on where I stand on this topic, I'm going to leave you with my most important thought today. If you can't treat someone with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. If you can't treat someone with an, from another gender, whether that's a man or a woman, with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. If you demean someone in any way, then you need to get out. And if you can't treat someone from another race or different color skin with dignity and respect, then you need to get out. Now, fortunately, Paul isn't telling us we need to get out. But he is saying that there are behaviors that have no place among us. And, and this lieutenant general is recognizing this behavior doesn't fit. And there are behaviors that don't fit Christians. And if you're like me, I find uh, verses 5 and 5 and 5, 6 to be particularly difficult. Because we hear just how serious God takes sin. And he says in this stark warning, starting with verse 5, that you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Now we need to talk about this for a moment, because at first glance, uh, it sounds like Paul is saying that if you've committed one of these sins, that you're not going to go to heaven. And if you're like me, I thought, well, I, I could very well have committed one of these sins on the way to church this morning. So we need to untangle what Paul's saying here, especially about this word evildoer. Because if you're thinking that you've been an evildoer already today, then you're not the kind of evildoer that Paul is speaking of right here. Because this kind of evildoer stands in opposition to who Paul brings up in verse 1. That is to say, this person is not an imitator of God. This person is a non-believer. And you may recall Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where Paul, just a couple of chapters before we get here, he makes it abundantly clear that salvation is by grace through faith. Um, it's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So he made it very clear there that salvation doesn't come by not committing sins. It's not by works. So we don't gain or lose our salvation on how we don't sin. So then well, what is Paul saying? 
Paul is saying that we don't live like the old man. We don't live like the person we were before we became a Christian. That's what Paul is iterating here. That's what he's wanting to make abundantly clear. Uh, we don't live as those who have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. It's kind of like if you ever had somebody look at you and maybe you've just done something that, that they recognized was just sort of out of character, and they said, well, when you did that thing, whatever it was, you know, that, that really just didn't seem like you. Uh, it just doesn't seem like something you would do. That's what Paul's saying about all this stuff. He's saying, this isn't you. This isn't what we do. So the kingdom of God is not for saints who have never sinned, but for sinners who have been redeemed by Christ's supreme sacrifice. And I hope by the grace of God, First Baptist Church of Sheridan will always be a place where we sinful saints can gather together and give each other a whole lot of grace and forgiveness. A church really does need to be a hospital. So, these evildoers, what they receive is the wrath of God. Not the kingdom of heaven, but the wrath of God. And this verse speaks to just how seriously God treats sin. And Paul, in verse 6, Paul's saying, don't let anyone deceive you that his wrath is going to come down on these sons of disobedience. These sons of disobedience are not sons of daughters, sons and daughters of Christ. Okay? That's this distinction that's being drawn here. So in these previous verses, Paul's laying out this antithesis to walking in love. But why? I mean, why are these particular sins, the ones that are listed, um, as being against walking in love, as obstacles to walking in love? And there's a reason for that. It's because all of these things that Paul is mentioning, all that he's saying, uh, are, are, are means of self-gratification, selfishness. And that stands in opposition to love. All of these things he's speaking of are about being self-seeking. God has designed sex to be in a marriage relationship. It's not just about getting your own needs met by looking at something online. God did not design speech for the purpose of self-gratification. It's not just about Chad using speech to try to make himself look funny. He looks funny enough. Uh, it's not about me cutting, out someone, cutting down someone else in order to make myself feel better about myself. But rather, we see the purpose of it at the end of verse 4. The purpose is for thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is speaking words of appreciation to someone else. Um, it's crying out to God in both good times and in bad times. It's what we do at the beginning of our service. I loved, I loved our time of praise this morning where we are giving thanksgiving to God. And it's not just when life is going well. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, we ought to give thanks for all fortune. If it is good, because it is good. If bad, because it works in us patience, humility, and the contempt of this world, and the hope of our eternal country. And I love that phrase, the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country. Because if life is really bad right now, you can have hope that you just spent the last minute here that you won't have to spend again, and you're one minute closer to being in heaven. And sometimes, sometimes that's just about the only hope we have, is that it's temporary. Don't walk in love through self-gratifying conduct and speech. Rather, walk in love by being thankful. 
So far, we can walk in love by abstaining from pornography, being thankful. And then how do we walk in love in the positive sense? Because we'll go back to verses 1 and 2, and here Paul's going to say positively, here's how you walk in love. He says there in verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, it's simple. Just imitate God. Simple, right? No, it's not, it's not simple at all. Um, but couldn't we just sort of sum up the entire New Testament to say, well, just imitate God. Just imitate God, you know, everything's going to be all right. Uh, that's where the bar is set. And if you want to know who your ultimate role model is, it's Christ himself. Christ will say, be holy as I am holy. Well, we need to catch this next statement. Before that, though, I love this quote from uh, Philo. He's a, a historian. He said, we ought to flee from earth to heaven. And this flight means to become like God as far as possible. And to become like him is to become holy, just, and wise. See, he recognizes, and this is a guy who was a Christian in a time of extreme persecution. He recognized that he really, he really knew that no answers would be found on earth. And our hearts need to be in that next country. To be like God. And to become like him, being holy, just, and wise. Don't miss this next statement, because I really think this is the key. The manner in which we are to be imitators of God is as beloved children. And I really think this is the key. I think the degree to which we do this will be the degree to which we can accept this love that God has for us. Uh, and, and Paul will describe it further in the next verse. But he says that we are a dearly loved child. Now remember, verse 6 said we were, there are sons of disobedience out there. But we're not the sons and daughters of disobedience. We're the beloved child of God. That word beloved, this, this phrase, agapetas and tekna, the word he uses for children, it's like you are a, an only child. The, the picture here is an only child with two parents who dearly, dearly love that child. And that child is so content with the love of his or her parents that they really need nothing else. That's what it's like to be a beloved child of God. And you know what? If we really got this, I mean, if we really got it, like down on the heart level, we would not need a single like on Facebook. We would not, we would not need a single person to click, heart, click a heart on Twitter. If we really got this, if we could really accept the kind of love that is being extended to us. We would have a need. We would be perfectly contented in it. Then the next verse, how have we experienced this great love? Uh, in verse 2, it says, And walk in love, another command, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So after the command to walk in love, that love of Christ for us is this, is that he was willing to die for us. This is ultimately, this is the highest calling of walking in love, is to be willing to die for someone. And I believe that our ability to do this, though, will come down to understanding just how dearly loved 
we are, that we are so content with the love that God has for us that we would not selfishly try to hang on to our own life. How do we walk in love then? I'd like to sum it up in just these three things. Walk in love by abstaining from pornography, being thankful, and being content in Christ. In closing, I'd like to share with you a story. This is actually a story about one Muslim convert to Christianity who's had an ongoing relationship with another Muslim who's uh, resolutely Muslim, not, was not willing initially to trust Christ. But I, wanna, I want you to hear this conversation that they had. Uh, Nabil Qureshi was the Muslim convert to Jesus Christ. And he had this uh, resolutely Muslim friend named Sehar who was attracted to parts of Christianity but could not accept the idea of God becoming a human. And on one occasion, she asked some very uh, honest questions to her friend Nabil. And she said, how can you believe in Jesus as God if he was born through the birth canal of a woman and had to go to the bathroom? Those are very, yeah, those are very good questions. Honest questions, aren't they? And you know what? He received those questions. He, he didn't laugh. And she says, aren't these things beneath God? He affirmed her questions. By the way, if an unbeliever comes to you asking questions, the worst thing you can do is not affirm the... Yes, good question. Let's talk about it. That's what he did. And he turned to her and he said, Sehar, let's say that you are on your way to a very important ceremony and are dressed in your finest clothes. You're about to arrive just on time, but then you see your daughter drowning in a pool of mud. What would you do? Would you let her drown and arrive looking dignified? Or rescue her but arrive at the ceremony covered in mud? She had a very quick, matter-of-fact response. She said, of course, I would jump in the mud and save her. So he nuanced the question, and he asked it one more time. He said, let's say there were others with you. Would you send someone else to save her, or would you save her yourself? She responded, if she is my daughter, how could I send anyone else? They would not care for her like I do. I would go myself, definitely. Koresh said, if you, being human... Love your daughter so much that you are willing to lay aside your dignity to save her. How much more can we expect God, if he is our loving father, to lay aside his majesty to save us? That biblical story of God it eventually won her heart. And uh, as, as Koreshi reported, the message of God's selfless love had overpowered her, and she could no longer remain a Muslim. She had accepted Jesus as her Savior. This is the kind of selfless love that we want to extend to others as well. One that is not self-gratifying, but one that is self-sacrificing. Please pray with me. God, thank you for loving us with this sacrificial love. God, thank you for teaching us how to love others. And Lord, it's a high call. God, give us the strength to do it. Give us the wisdom to accept your love on the deepest level, Lord, that we would find contentment there, that our hearts would find contentment there instead of going on a, on a search for things that can never bring us contentment. God, we ask in all the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you all so much for being here today.